Well, hello, and welcome to Ridge Church Online. Wherever you're joining us from today, I want to welcome you here. We're so glad that you've chosen to tune in today, whether it is live on the Sunday as this service plays, or whether it's later on and you're just catching up on the sermon that you missed this last week. We are so excited that you are here. If you don't know me, that's all good. My name is Dan. I'm the pastor of youth and young adults here at Ridge Church, and it's a joy to be with you. It's a joy to be heard by you today. And And we're continuing on in our series called How to Be Rich. And what we're doing and have been doing over the last number of weeks in the midst of everything else going on in our lives is talking about the topic of money. We've been talking about money and we've been talking about what it looks like for you and I to have money and the reality that actually those of us, particularly those of us in Canada in a middle class kind of status, but in general that you and I, regardless of where we find ourselves, regardless of whether you rent or own your home, regardless of how many vehicles you own or what that vehicle is like, that you and I are rich. And that what we need to learn how to do is to be rich well. How do we do that? That's what we've been looking at for the last number of weeks. And that means we've been talking about money, which Jonathan has acknowledged over the last number of weeks can be really uncomfortable. It can be a little bit awkward. It can be a little bit weird. And that's because money in general, it doesn't matter who you are, what kind of relationships you have, is an uncomfortable topic, right? Uh, I remember when I was younger, uh, a number of years ago, and, and I got engaged, and that was a really exciting thing. My fiance Jalisa and I, we were so excited to get married, all these things, right? Bible says to become one, it's gonna be the best, we're so excited, all it is is fun and romantic and all those sort of things. But, but one of the things that came along with getting engaged was also the beginning of the conversation of what it meant that we didn't have Jalisa's money and Dan's money, we had our money with the good and the bad parts of that. I remember conversations like, oh, wait, you have how much student debt? I guess that's how much student debt that we have to now deal with. I remember conversations like, you spend how much on hockey sticks for your ball hockey league? You spend how much on other sports gear just to have a hobby that you do? And I remember all these conversations as we were figuring out what were our values around money, what mattered to us about money, how were we going to kind of function with a budget and a plan and long-term goals and short-term goals and all these things that are just part of getting married, part of becoming a team and a partnership and those kind of things. But if I'm honest, probably one of the most awkward conversations that Jaleesa and I had to have about sharing our money, it wasn't about what we made, it wasn't even about what we spent or how we spent our money, it was about what we chose as a couple to give away. See, see, the conversation that we had to have about what we had to give away and how we were going to do that and what it looked like for, for us as a family to be generous was an uncomfortable one because a lot of the times it's not something we really talk about or think about, right? I'll never forget the first time we both got a paycheck. We came home from our honeymoon. It was amazing. Everything's romantic. We're in love. It's this amazing, awesome thing. We've got presents all over the place. People have loved us well. We're excited to start life together and we get our first paycheck. And I remember us both getting those paychecks and I'll never forget sitting down and talking and going, okay, we're, we're young, but we're going to figure this out. We're going to do the budgeting thing. We're going to be mature and, and let's talk about what's the plan with our budget. And, I, and I'm me, so I can get a little bit controlling and Jaleesa, if you ever talk to her, can speak to this for sure. And, and I had this plan. Okay, here's how we're going to pay rent. And here's what we're going to put to this and here's what's going in savings and here's how we're going to pay off that student loan and here's how we're going to get ready for me to do my master's in a couple years and here's how we're going to do this and that and all the other thing. We're we're each going to get a little bit of money to spend. We're each going to get a little bit of money for this, for that. The other thing, if you know me, I definitely had a budget line as I continue to for really good high-end coffee, all those kind of things. We even had a budget line for going on dates. All the details were there and they were ready to go until Jaleesa asked me, what about giving? What about giving? I remember in that moment being 20 years old and newly married and trying to be like a good husband and all these kind of things, feeling a little bit embarrassed. See, it wasn't that I hadn't thought about giving. It wasn't that I hadn't thought about the idea that we would not keep all our money, but that we would give some away. It's just that 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 wasn't the top of the list. 
What I needed to take care of first was the essentials. Rent, car insurance, gas, food, those normal things, right? And after the essentials, I just wanted to take care of the stuff that like really would impact our lives. Right? How much money do we get to spend on our hobbies? How much money do we get to spend to go shopping? How much money do we get to spend on new clothes when we need them? How, how much do we get for kind of those things that are, are maybe not essential, but they're important, right? To live a, a full and happy life. And I remember talking about this and, and Jaleesa asked what, asking what is our plan for giving? And I remembered this verse that I'd heard a few times, even though I hadn't grown up a ton around the church from 2 Corinthians, and you probably know it too. Each of you, the Bible says, should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly and not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I love that line. God loves a cheerful giver. So, so that means I can give when I'm cheerful about it. I can give when I feel great about it. When I stumble into some extra money, when I have a little bit more than I thought I would, then then when I'm cheerful about it, I'll be able to give. Once I've got all that stuff sorted out, once my rent is paid, once everything is sorted, once I've made sure that everything I need to live a comfortable life is in place, well, then I can be generous and, and I can be cheerful about it. I'm not being greedy. I'm not being selfish. I'm just, I only want to be a cheerful giver because that's what the Bible says, doesn't it? But Jaleesa, in her wisdom, pointed out that her understanding is that our giving, whether to the church, our church that we attended at that time, or to other forms of justice ministry that we had talked about being passionate about together, would be the first thing we did with our money, not the last. It would be the top priority of what happened when God gave us a paycheck through work, through something else, through whatever it may be. And I remember having this conversation And I remember feeling, like I said, a little bit embarrassed and a little bit uncomfortable because the more I thought about the idea of making giving and generosity my priority, the more I started to fear and feel anxious about what that would mean for all the other things, what that would take away from, what might happen instead. But the more I have read the New Testament in my life, whether that's the life and words of Jesus himself or the epistles, these letters that were written by Jesus's friends, the apostles, about what it means to live out our faith in Jesus, the more I have felt convicted that this idea that I can look at a verse like God loves a cheerful giver and then pass that off to say, well, generosity will only happen when I feel cheerful and feel like giving is not something that realistically makes sense with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When I read the New Testament, the more it seems to push against that place in my heart that is obsessed, not necessarily with insane amounts of greed or needing insane amounts of wealth, but but with my own protection, with my own comfort, with my own security, My, my way of life being marked by being okay, by not having to be stressed, by not being stretched too thin, by not having to be sacrificial. What I wanted was a life marked by personal financial security, not a life marked by sacrificial giving. Sure, I wanted to be generous. Sure, I wanted to be kind. Sure, I wanted to make sure everybody knew I was a good Christian and, and I believed that with my wallet as well, but, but I didn't want to have to sacrifice certain things to do it. A life marked by personal financial security was the goal, and, and for most of us, that's not an unreasonable goal, is it? As Jonathan's talked about the last couple of weeks, there's nothing wrong with desiring financial stability and ability to care for your family and ability to put your kids through college, whatever that may be. But ever since I've been that young 20-year-old embarrassed by my lack of thought about what it means to be generous, I've been wrestling with the reality that oftentimes the way that I view money, the way that I view what I consider my money has been formed much more by the ads I watched on TV or the things that pop up on my Instagram feed, or what I hear my friends talk about they recently purchased, or whatever my phone has heard me talk about and shown me because they know that I'm thinking about it and talking about it. And you know this, right? If you have a smartphone, if you have an iPhone or or an Android or whatever it may be, you know that you can have a conversation about something and, and totally you have your privacy, you have all those things, but somehow you start to see ads all over your Instagram, all over your Facebook. I was driving with a friend the other day and we were talking about how when our wives are away, what what guys and and many guys you may relate to this will do is, is we'll go to the grocery store and we'll go, I need 
dinner for myself, which oftentimes ends up being a bag of frozen fries and a bag of chips, right? Because then you have the frozen potato, the raw potato, you're good to go. You got all the potato that you need. And you know what I started to see after that conversation? Just ads upon ads upon ads for McCain super fries. They, the, the world wanted me to get McCain super fries or stop at McDonald's and grab the new waffle fries or do this or that and the other thing. All of a sudden, everything and everywhere I looked was telling me, Dan, you need some French fries. And don't get me wrong, I love French fries, but I do not need French fries. And whether it's something as silly and as simple as French fries, or whether it's an Italian vacation, or an amazing thing, or, or whatever it is that you see on those ads, we, we look at these things and we see them, and, and the world shapes and forms us and shows us what it wants us to believe in, what it wants us to chase after. But remember, what we've read a couple of times over the last number of weeks in this series from the Apostle Paul in his letter to his student, Timothy, as he writes about what it looks like to be rich and to do that well. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, remember that's you and I, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up a treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's a great thought, right? We can read those verses and those sound amazing, but what does that actually mean? What does it mean for us to do good works? What does it look like for us to be rich in good works? What does it look like actually, practically in 2022 in Maple Ridge, BC or wherever you're listening to this or watching this from? What does it look like for us to be generous? Because it feels so subjective, doesn't it? Like there's not a clear picture that you've given this many dollars or this exact amount or, or whatever it may be. And when something's subjective, if you're like me, if, it, if it's subjective, it feels not totally clear, it's, it's kind of easy to just push it off to the side. It's kind of easy to just go, well, who knows what that really means, right? Maybe I'll do this thing here, this thing here. And when I feel good about it, I'll, I'll buy someone a coffee or, or that kind of thing. But, but I don't really know what generosity means. And so I just don't want to open up that can of worms in my life. We say things like, I tithe my time. I remember when I was a young kid and I wasn't making a lot of money and I was in college, I, I was meeting with my mentor and he point blank asked me, hey, what, what does your tithe look like? Do you tithe? I know you don't make a lot of money, but do you give to the church or do you give to ministries or things that you have, uh, have placed on your heart by God? And I looked at him and I, and I thought I was so mature and I was 17, 18 and, and I was like, oh yeah, I mean, I serve at youth a couple hours a week, so I just tithe my time. I don't have to give my money because I give my time and I'll never forget my, the face that my mentor Morgan gave me where he just looked as if that doesn't even make sense. We say things like, well, I work hard at my job, so I deserve to have the things that I want. I deserve to take care of myself and everything else can come after that. We, we say things like, I can buy my friend dinner or a coffee, or I can spot them here or there. In fact, I'm happy to buy them as long as next time they get me, as long as in some way, shape, or form they pay me back, as, as long as they owe me one for it, I'm okay with being generous. But I want you to listen to what Paul said. In his farewell in the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church, we see Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, saying goodbye to the elders and the leaders in this church in a place called Ephesus. He's saying goodbye to them. And in this moment, when Paul writes these words, he actually believes that he's going to his death. So this is not a see you later. This is truly a goodbye. I will miss you. And he ends his speech, this epic final speech, right? Because a final speech has got to be epic. You want it to matter. You want it to be remembered. Listen to what Paul says to close out his final words of wisdom. These are the leaders that he's trained, he's prayed for, he's developed. This is what he says. Now, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. But then listen to what he says. 
I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. We must remember the words Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So what does Paul say? How does Paul wrap up his time, his ministry, his care, his leadership for these people? He basically says two things. He says, I want to commit you to God's word of grace. What is God's word of grace? The gospel. That Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. That that reality, the good news of Jesus Christ is what will change them and carry them forward. That makes sense. That's the core of everything that Paul believes. That's the core of what we believe. But look at what he says second. He says we have to help the weak. We have to help those who are hurting. Why? Because Jesus himself said it's better to give than to receive. He doesn't just say it's about the gospel. He says it's about the gospel and generosity is an overflow of that reality. And so the question is, are those different subjects? Is the idea of believing in Jesus and his sacrifice and victory over sin, Satan, and death. Is that a different topic than what it means for us to be generous? Is that something where Paul's just kind of throwing two random things where he's like, yes, believe the gospel, do all that good stuff. Also, P.S., you should be generous because that's kind of a good thing to do if you feel like it. No, they're connected. They're absolutely connected. Paul is not adding a PS in his final speech. For Paul, generosity is a concept, or maybe more broadly, a way of life that is interconnected to what it means to understand the gospel of grace that is offered us in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul talks about it. Here with the elders, in the letter he writes, and in the letter he writes to Timothy, and in many of the letters we see him write to churches in Philippi, Colossae, and Thessalonica, and other places, he talks about what it looks like for our belief and our understanding of the gospel to overflow into generous action, into generous love, into generous giving. What if, for you and for me, regardless of our age, regardless of our life stage, regardless of how many rooms or bathrooms are in our house, regardless of what tax bracket we are in, what if, an, what if a central piece of what it means for you and I to follow Jesus is actually how it impacts our money? How it impacts the way that we give generously? What if generosity is an absolutely essential part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Now, before we go on, I want to acknowledge that you might be feeling a little bit uncomfortable. As we've talked about before, when a pastor stands up in front of people and talks about money, there's been many times and places where that has been done improperly and wrongly. It can come across right now like I am telling you that God's love for you is in some way dependent on your generosity via dollar amount given to the church. It can seem as if I am saying that, that God will maybe bless you if you give more, that based on a number amount, based on how you've sown your seed, as some have used the language of, to abuse the language of scripture, that, that somehow that will mean that God will bless you more or whatever that may be. What I want you to know as you listen to this is that is not what we believe here at Rich Church. We believe ultimately in the gospel of grace that God has graciously provided our every need through providing the ultimate blessing in the gift of his son, Jesus, who came to set us free from sin, Satan, and death. Our greatest problem is not the size of our house, the amount on our paycheck, or anything other than the reality is that we are sinners separated from God and that because of Jesus, we can be reunited in relationship with him beginning today and going on into eternity. That is what we believe, but we do believe that that will impact our money. I love what Paul writes in his first words to the Ephesian church. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with what? Not a BMW, not a fancy house, not a new this, that, or the other thing, but with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. 
For he has chosen us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. What is the greatest and most beautiful picture of riches and blessing there could be? It is that God views us through the lens of Jesus and that we are blameless before him. But what we do want you to understand and why we're doing this series, why we're talking about money, is that how we use our money will be directly impacted by how we understand the message of the gospel. The gospel will undeniably affect not only our eternal destiny, but the reality of what it means for you and I as followers of Jesus to live our lives in the here and now. And right here, right now, we live in a world that is driven by greed as an unspoken but a foundational reality that people use as a motivator in their lives. And we have no problem recognizing that, right? It's easy to look around the world and say there's so much greed. There's so much striving and a lust for power and a lust for control and all these different things. It's so easy to look around and see all the greed in the world. Look at the injustice. Look at the income inequality. Look at the way that people are suffering on the streets in the city that we live in. It's so easy to look and say, oh, look at what greed is doing. But here's the problem. Nobody thinks they're the greedy one. Nobody thinks I'm the problem. I'm the one who's greedy. I'm the one who holds on to money. I I remember chatting with someone from Vancouver, or pardon me, from Burnaby. And they were talking about how all those rich people in Vancouver don't get what it's like to be from Burnaby. And I kind of chuckled because I thought of my friend um, who lives in the Tri-Cities who talks about how cool it would be if he had enough money to live in a place like Burnaby where rich people live. And and I laughed a ton because I thought about those of us who live here in the Ridge Meadows area and how we look and we go, oh my goodness, what would it be like to live beyond the bridges? So close to the Sky Train. You can get downtown in 20 minutes. Oh my, to be rich enough to live in Coquitlam. But then I think of those in mission who go, oh my gosh, you have so much industry, so many things happening. We we are so far away from everything. We get only like one train that goes in a couple of times a week. It takes hours for us to get downtown And, and on and on and on it goes until you get all the way to the end of the world in Merritt. I'm just kidding. I love Merritt. It's where I stop for coffee every time I drive to the interior. But you see what happens, right? We take where we live, we take the amount of money that we make, we take the economic bracket that we're in, and we look at someone else and go, they're the problem. They're the rich ones. I wish I had more. I, I'm nothing compared to those who have more than me. And we, we get in this mindset that we're sure that there's someone else who's rich. There's someone else who needs to be more generous. There's someone else who needs to be kinder and more giving with their money. Someone else is the issue. The challenge with greed is that we compare it with other sins. We compare it with sins that are obvious and upfront, right? Nobody nobody needs to wonder what lust might look like. Nobody needs to wonder what a a fit of rage might look like. Those things are obvious. What what the problem with greed is, is it sneaks in. It, It doesn't ask permission. It doesn't show up in some explosive reality. It's not like the movies like Gordon Gecko and Wall Street or anything like that. It it takes years or months, and it sneaks into our hearts. John Wesley, who famously, famously was very cautious with his amount of influence and the amount of money that he had, said this, when I have money, I get rid of it quickly, or pardon me, quietly, lest it find its way into my heart. Because that's the reality. While money may not be as obvious, while greed may not be as obvious, if we are not careful and aware through the years of our lives, through one more Amazon order, through one more gaze at someone else's amazing looking living room, through just a little bit of jealousy when we see our friend's new place that we know we couldn't afford, through our irritation when we hear people talk about how their vacation was and we think about how our vacation was shorter and closer and much less impressive, it seeps in. And just like the rich fool in Luke 12 that we read about the other week, who spent his life trying to build up all the riches in the world, all the things that he thought would give his life purpose. We end our lives with everything we thought mattered and nothing that actually does. We self-justify. We begin to view the world in a comparative lens. 
we start to look at ourselves and we go, okay, what is the cap of riches that a Christian should have? Well, it's me or maybe 10,000 or so more dollars ahead of me. So that way I have room to move up. We, we look at anyone who has more than us and we are angry at them for having more than us and we judge them for not giving enough. We get upset when we see people with more money, but we look at ourselves and we go, no, 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 I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. We are what a real follower of Jesus looks like. I am a perfect example of what generosity looks like. But, but here's what you need to know. Jesus never actually said money is an idol, so stay away from it. Jesus never said those words. He, he warned about the dangers of money, the side effects of money that we've been talking about through this series. You see in the New Testament and in Jesus's life, rich people and poor people around him. We see a group of very wealthy women funding Jesus's ministry. And we don't see him say, how dare you have that much money? How dare you do this with it? What we do see Jesus say is that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want to know what your idols are, look at your credit card statement. Look at your Amazon order history. Look at the big purchases that you are making. Look at what it's easy to spend your money on. Look at what's popping up in that algorithm and what kind of ads you're seeing, whether it's from McCain fries or anything else. Look at all these things. Here's the reality. You will always find it effortless to spend your money that are on the things that you have placed your actual hope in. You will always be able to justify just one more purchase, just one more clothing item, just one more whatever it may be, if that's a thing you are actually placing your functional hope to save you in. You will always be able to give that a reason to, to know that, oh, I need to spend just a little bit more, I need to get just one more this, just one more that, just one more purchase, just one more credit card run through. It's easy to justify. For me, it's books. Anytime an Amazon order shows up at our house, Jaleesa goes, oh, is it another book? Is it another book? There's no way I can keep up to the amount of books that I actually purchase, but in my mind, I can justify. And if I'm honest with myself, what I have to do and what we as followers of Jesus have to do is we actually have to dig deeper than just saying, oh, I like books, so I buy a lot of books. No, I have to dig deeper and go, okay, why am I so okay with spending this much money on books? Because I, I probably won't have time to read it right away, certainly not today, but, but maybe down the road. That maybe there's a part of me deep down that wants to sound smart, that, that wants to be considered an intellectual and, and wise and all these things. And if I can read enough books or have enough books to show on my bookshelf, that, then people can come and see that I'm well read, that I'm this and that, and people will be impressed with me. And so, yes, I can order another book. Yes, it's worth it to order another book because then people will know I'm not just the type of youth pastor who like plays dodgeball and eats pizza, but I'm also the type of youth pastor who reads like John Wesley and Augustine. And deep down, there's an idol in my life that's seeking after approval, that's seeking after being something that God has never called me to be, that lets me justify what I spend my money on that I do not need to spend money on. So my question for you today is this, what is yours? What is the thing that you will spend your money on looking for something that only God can give you? What is the purchase that you know you're making over and over again, trying to fill a gap in your soul that no amount of sweaters or shoes or vacations or cars could ever fill? Whatever those things might be, where are you finding your approval? Where are you finding your rest? Is it in God speaking over you that you are loved? Or if you're honest, are you looking for it in the next purchase to make you feel better? See, I think deep down we all know that greed is the issue. If we're willing to be gut level honest with ourselves, we know that there is greed in our hearts that we are chasing after things that will never ever satisfy. But the question is, what do we do about it? Because here's the reality, fear is not gonna work. God is not going out to get you and punish you and, and tell you you're not being generous enough so God doesn't like you anymore. 
God's love for you as we see in Jesus is not based on how many dollars you give to this church or any other ministry of the kingdom of God. Fear might get you to give, but ultimately what it will lead to is a mistrust of the church, a mistrust of those of us who are leading in it, a mistrust of God himself because coercion and control never leads to lasting change. Fear won't work to change our hearts. Shame won't work either. And you know what this is like when, when shame's been used to try and guilt you into something. I remember being in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago and someone running up to me and saying, look at the jacket you're wearing. Why haven't you given money? You need to give money to this cause because look at you. You're so clearly rich and you're so selfish to be walking around like that. And I remember being like, whoa, you're just making me feel terrible. This is not making me want to give to whatever your cause is because I just want to get away from you because you're just making me feel bad. You're just making me feel hurt. And maybe in a moment it might get me to give, but that's much more about soothing my ego than it is about actually being generous. Generosity can't flow from shame because if it does, all I'm doing is trying to make myself feel better. It has nothing to do with loving or serving or caring for anyone else. It's just virtue signaling to show that I'm generous so the people around me, whether strangers in Vancouver or the people in my life, know that I'm a generous person. That's not real change. Shame won't work to change our souls. Neither will control work. For some of you, you have this idea that you are so good with your money that you can control everything that happens with it. That, that you can actually make sure that, that, that you can run the numbers, that you can break things down, that you can look at things and go, okay, if I give this amount of money, this is the level of influence I expect to have on this ministry or this church or whatever it may be. This is the dollars to conversions ratio that I want to see before I'm willing to commit my money to this thing. I want to know all the details, all the things. And there, there's something very beautiful and very important about accountability. I'm not knocking that in any way, shape, or form. But what we cannot do is take over and make sure that money works exactly in the way that we want it to, to accomplish our goals. Because then what we've done is we've bypassed God, we've made ourselves the controller of everything that is happening with our generosity, and then it's not generosity at all. It's just us making ourselves the boss. We must reshape our hearts. But fear will not work, shame will not work, and control will not work. And so what I want to offer you today is the invitation of Jesus to the practice of generosity, the practice, the discipline of generosity. I believe, and I have seen experientially in my own life and in what I read in the New Testament, that generosity is one of the best ways for us to reorient our hearts around what Jesus has called us to. That's why I think Paul says it in his farewell speech. That's why apparently Jesus himself said that it is better to give than to receive. But if we're honest, do we really believe Jesus when he says that? It's better to give than receive. And we're like, yeah, is it? Because like I was a kid at Christmas and my parents were good parents. And so my parents told me, oh, it's actually, it's better to go shop for your brother's Christmas present than it is to get your Christmas present. And, and like, you know, even as a 10, 11, 12 year old, you're like, okay, mom. But like deep down, I know, like I'm not as excited about the thing Mike's gonna unwrap as I am about the thing I'm gonna unwrap. Cause I already know what that is and I'm not even gonna get to play with that thing. I'm excited about what I get for me. So, so Jesus can say it's better to give than to receive and, and I can kind of, yeah, sure, but really? Do, do I really believe that? Well, the reality is that you should know, whether you're a Christian or not listening to this, is that social science has begun to point out that Jesus and the early church may have actually been onto something quite true. Listen to what Christian Smith and Hilary Davidson write in their book, The Paradox of Generosity, where they research thousands of people, what generosity does and what it looks like to live a life of generosity. Here's what they say. People rightly say that money cannot buy you happiness. But money and happiness are related in a curious way. Happiness can be the result not of spending more on oneself, but rather of giving money away to others. The data we have examined here shows this not simply to be a nice idea. This is not simply a nice idea for 12-year-old Dan who needs to buy his brother a Christmas present, but a social, scientific fact. 
If you were to go and read their book, what you'd find is a massive amount of correlations between the amount of money percentage-wise people gave away and a person's level of personal happiness, their physical health, low rates of depression and anxiety, a greater sense of purpose in life and work, but a higher interest in personal development. This isn't even a Christian thing. This isn't even over-spiritualizing and say, well, if you're generous, God is going to bless you and God's going to do that. No, no, the social science just says people who are more generous are more happy. People who are more generous are more healthy. People who are more generous have deeper and more life-giving relationships than people who do not, whether they are Christians or not. This is the reality of what generosity Rossity does to us as we practice us, practice it. It sets us free from the lie that what we need is more. John D. Rockefeller, a very rich oil man um, from years and years and years and years ago, was once asked, he was the richest man in the world, he was asked, how much money would be enough? His response, famously, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. The disease of greed is the lie that all we need is just a little bit more. One more package at the door. One more thing to hang in our closets. One more room in the house. One more vacation. One more this, that, or the other. But generosity is the gospel's clearest and deepest antidote to our greed. To the lie of more. To the sense that what we have is not enough. It is how we do good. It is how we are to be rich in good works, and it is how we share what God has entrusted to us. If you've read the letters that Paul writes to Timothy, what you'll see is that he actually fills it with language of battle. He calls Timothy a good soldier for the gospel. He uses words like fight and be on your guard, these, these very kind of aggressive, offensive kind of terms of, of war, of battle. And lots has been made of, of why Paul writes those things to this young leader and what he's doing. But I wonder if, if this shows us that generosity is actually our greatest weapon in the battle of the idols of our age. The last stat that I could find was from 2021, but it says that 296.4 billion every year in the U.S., so this is not the U.S., or pardon me, not Canada, but the U.S. is spent on marketing. Nearly $300 billion is spent to convince you that that razor or these shoes or that new set of dishes and silverware, that thing would make your life complete. That thing would fix what's broken in your marriage. That thing would deal with your depression. That thing would make you feel happier at work. $300 billion. And I'm not taking a shot at all marketing. I think there's really beautiful marketing to explain this is what a product does and this is why it's beautiful. And this is, I'm not saying that's all that money is used for. What I am saying is that there is a great reality that we need to be aware of that everything in our world is driving at our attention to tell us what we need in order to live a whole life. And I'm telling you, more stuff will not fulfill you. Generosity is how we fight back. It is how we proclaim that we do have enough. It is how we proclaim that we serve a God who provides for us, that you and I are not defined by what we own, but we are defined by Jesus and his work on the cross. And so today, as we head into our conclusion, I want to invite you to be generous. I want to invite you into a life marked by generosity. And if you are not yet giving, if you are not yet a person who is giving in any way, shape, or form, or, or maybe it's something you just wait until the, the, the kind of feeling arises and it feels good or, or this thing happens or whatever it may be, two reasons I think you should start to be generous now. Firstly, it will only get harder. The more money that you have, the more money that you make, the harder it will be to be generous with that money. See, generosity is a spiritual discipline. That means that whether we feel cheerful about it or not, there is something to be said for the practice and the discipline of building a budget and a rhythm in our life that says generosity is a priority. It will not happen by accident. I've known many people who have planned generosity for later on, but here's the problem. Every time I've made more money in my life, I've found more things to spend my money on. 
Every time I've thought, wow, now I'm rich because look at this amount of money that I make that I didn't used to make when I was 18, 19, 20, and an intern and a broke college student, all that. Every time I've made more money, I've found more things to spend that money on. And secondly, what you currently do with your money is forming you spiritually. What you do with your budget, what you do with your paycheck is forming who you are as a human being. As many people have said it, we make our decisions and then our decisions make us. So as we wrap up, I want to offer you three very practical, very straightforward things that you can do to practice and live out a life of generosity. Firstly, make generosity a priority. Just like the story I told earlier, this one has always been tough for me. I always... I've always been someone who sees the worst possible outcomes. I get a paycheck and my first thought is, what if the car breaks down? What if something goes wrong at work? What if the gas keeps going up? What if the economy tanks? What if something needs fixing around the house? But what I have seen in my life anecdotally um, is that God has always been faithful to provide for us. That in seasons where we have had great need through a number of different things, whether it's provision of jobs and side jobs and different forms of income, whether it's miraculous means, that God has always, always provided our needs through the context of Christian community where we find an Acts 2 picture of everyone having all things in common, that none were poor among them. We see and we know through scripture and through many of our own experiences that God has proven faithful. And so we can make giving a priority. We can make our generosity the first thing that we do with our money. We can decide here and now that generosity is something we will make a first priority. And then secondly, we would encourage you to actually practice percentage in your giving. And what we mean by that um, is, is that you should consider your giving to be done through the lens of a percentage rather than a dollar amount. There's this story in Mark chapter 12. It's a very famous story. You probably recognize it. Jesus um, celebrates the gift of a widow in the midst of a large congregation. Here's what it says in Mark 12. He sat down opposite the treasury and he watched people putting money into the offering box. This is Jesus. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, a couple of pennies, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she took out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. Now, this is a heartwarming story, right? Jesus loves this little old lady. It's so sweet. She's poor, but she's giving. And it is heartwarming. But, but what you need to understand here is that Jesus is not celebrating, oh, she's a weak old widow. This is such a sweet story. She's so much nicer than those mean Pharisees. No, no, no. What Jesus is celebrating is that she has, in his words, given out of her poverty, what was nothing to most of the people present was everything to that widow. And Jesus celebrates this because it demonstrates her heart. This is not fear, shame, or control. No, this woman's heart has been so transformed that she is ready to give and to give sacrificially. It's not about the dollar amount. It is about where she is giving out of. What was nothing to them was everything to her. The $50 from a college student making a few hundred dollars a month working at a coffee shop in town is worth much more than thousands given by a millionaire simply looking for a tax break. There is great beauty in the offering, not because of its size, but because of its cost. That is what Jesus celebrates in our generosity. And so we encourage you to consider giving a percentage. Biblically speaking, a good starting place is a tithe or a tenth. That is why oftentimes we talk about 10% is a, is a great place to start. That's what many who have followed Jesus for many, many years commit to give their money towards. But you might be hearing this and go, that sounds crazy. I have never done that before. I am not giving that much. That would completely destroy my budget. That would completely destroy my lifestyle. But remember that it will only get harder the longer that you wait. 
And even if it's not that, I want you to know that that's okay. We start where we are, not where we wish we were. And so maybe for you right now, it's 1% or 2% or 3%, but it's starting somewhere and saying that regardless of how much money I make, $500 or $500,000, what I commit to give is this percentage of it away. And finally, we would encourage you to consider making your giving progressive. That is to say that as you progress in your financial life, consider increasing the percentage, what percentage number your giving is. I once heard a story of a guy I know who talked about how he and his wife aim that every year when they do their taxes and they look at what they've made in a year and they kind of do their yearly review like many couples, many families do on their financial means that they want to bump up their giving by 1% every year. The dream would be that by the time they're in their 80s and 90s, they're giving away a vast majority of the money that they have and knowing how to live on that small amount that's left. He's got an incredible gift at making money. He, he's trying to earn more. He's trying to get raises. He's trying to get better jobs. But what they are doing that is so beautiful is protecting themselves from the idol of greed by practicing a progressive level of generosity. Because as we are able to do that, if we are willing, what I want you to know is that we get to participate more deeply in the work of God in the world, in the places where justice and mercy is happening that God has given you a heart for. On Sunday afternoons here in the church, after you all go home or head out to lunch, we get the amazing privilege with myself and a couple other leaders to pour into a group called the Student Leadership Team. There's about 12 incredible high school students who are a part of that team. They are not just the future of this church, but I think the present leaders in our church. They are so inspiring. I'm so amazed by what God is doing in them and through them. This last week, one of the conversations we had was them talking about what they see as brokenness in the world that they want to see God speak into. And it was an amazing but a bit of a heavy conversation hearing about those things that they see, the brokenness in the world, the struggles in the world that they see across the world <coughs> or right here at home. And what they ended up talking about was all these different things, all these different causes. And in that moment, it started to feel a little bit heavy because it was like, well, how can we all just like figure out these things? There's so much that's just been shared that's so broken. But one of the things that was really cool to consider with them was the reality that actually though each one of us cannot solve these issues on our own, we believe that we serve a God who is making all things new in the words of the book of Revelation. We serve a God who is creating something beautiful out of us and out of the world around us, who is bringing about redemption, that though creation groans, God is at work in it. And that means that God has placed on each one of our hearts missions and mercies and justices that matter to us, that we can participate in financially, that actually allow us to feel not a sense of ownership, but a sense of participation in what God is doing. For Jaleesa and I, and for many of you, and what we'd encourage is that your primary one would be the local church that you are a part of. If you would call Ridge Church your home, what we ask is that you participate with us in the vision that we have, that our city would know Jesus. The first and primary giving that my family does is to this church. That is because we have said we are a part of this community and we are in alignment with the vision of this community that our city would know Jesus. So not only with our time, with our energy, with our gifts and whatever it may be, but also with our money, we will commit to give towards the mission and vision of this church. But beyond that, Jaleesa and I have a number of different things that we look at and say, that is what we are passionate about. That is what God has placed on our hearts. That is what we can pour our money towards, depending on what you're interested in. Maybe you're passionate about um, trafficking, human trafficking and sex trafficking. And so there's these amazing organizations like International Justice Mission or Ally Global that we encourage you to check out. Maybe you're passionate about missionary movements and, and partnering with these organizations that help send church planters and missionaries to different places. Maybe you're passionate about church planning right here at home. One of my good, good friends is planning a church right now and to see the amount of generosity that from different saints across this country that is now impacting a city that we as a church support is such an incredible gift to see. God is making all things new. And when you and I give, we participate in that process in 
the world. And when we give progressively, as we increase in financial security and wealth ourselves, we continue to increase our ability to participate in those things. Figure out what God has put on your hearts and then dive in and find the joy in participating with that work that God is doing. Ultimately, though, our hope for you is this. Beyond advice, beyond tips, beyond practices, is that you would come to understand the power that generosity can have in your life that little by little you can experience the loosening of chains of greed and selfishness that so easily entangle our hearts. What you need to know is this, every other treasure but Jesus will only enslave you. Every other treasure, the nicest clothes, the most beautiful house, the largest bank account you can imagine, being able to buy whatever you want, whenever you want, will never ever satisfy you. It will only enslave you. It is only Jesus that sets us free. When we see in the words of Paul in Philippians, God supplies our every need according to the riches and glory in Jesus Christ. When we grasp that our debt, our ultimate debt of sin and brokenness has already been paid, our poverty traded for the riches of Jesus, our brokenness exchanged for the wholeness of Christ's righteousness, we realize this, Every step we take in generosity is a step towards freedom. Every step that you take in generosity is a step towards freedom. Freedom from the lies that more is better. Freedom from the lies that your life is not enough without more stuff. Freedom from the lies and the idols of our day that say that you need more if your life ever is going to count. You can be set free when you practice generosity in the same way as Jesus. In the words of Paul in his letter to the Galatian church, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. My friends, do not submit to the slavery of greed, but be set free by the freedom of generosity. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your generosity. We thank you that you love the world so much, God, that you gave generously your only son that we might be saved by his work on the cross, his work in the resurrection. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that in the words of Romans 8, who could stand against us, who could make any claim against God's chosen people, that you did not even spare your own son, but gave him up for us. How then will we not trust that you will give us all things? Lord Jesus, we trust that you provide for us. Lord Jesus, we trust that you have called us not out of um, guilt or shame or fear into a life of generosity, but rather into a life of freedom. And so Lord Jesus, would you change and shape and reorient our hearts? Lord Jesus, would you show us what you are doing in the world and how we can participate in it? We love you. We thank you for what you're doing. And we pray that as you continue to reorient our hearts, that we would see what you can do when we trust you with our money to lay down the idol of greed, to take up the freedom of generosity and see and experience that you are good, you are trustworthy, and you are making all things new. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.